Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. When we gather before God each week, we are renewing covenant with our God. This is not because the covenant has expired, but because we are finite human beings that need regular reminding and we need regular renewal. God does not forget, but we do forget. God does not get tired, but we certainly do. One element of covenant renewal is the idea of covenant representation. When God made covenant with Abraham, he was also making covenant with all of Abraham's descendants. And remember that God made this covenant with Abraham before Abraham had any children at all. When God renewed covenant with Israel at Sinai, he was once again not merely renewing his covenant with those Israelites standing there at the foot of the mountain. A generation later, Moses told the generation, that generation, that they too had been at the foot of the mountain and they too had seen God's glory. How was that possible? The answer is covenant representation. When we stand before God, he not only sees us, he sees what we will be. He sees our children and grandchildren and beyond. Some of you are young parents with young children and you are faithfully laboring to be here on behalf of your little ones who don't understand yet what we are doing. Let me just encourage you, keep up the good work. We are all cheering you on. God will bless your labors. But let me remind everyone, we are all worshiping here this morning on behalf of many descendants, friends whom we have not yet met, who don't understand what we're doing, who have not yet arrived. So as you sing and pray and listen and eat and drink and raise your hands, do it all with this in mind. But don't misunderstand. This didn't just begin with you. You are standing here this morning because of fathers and mothers, because of grandparents and countless fathers and mothers in the faith who represented you to God. And at the very head of the line, the very head of the line, the one standing for all of us, representing all of us, is Jesus. He is standing for us in heaven right now. His blood is interceding for us and for our children to a thousand generations and for many who are still far off and yet to come. He is our great high priest. He is our covenant head, our covenant representative. And so you are most welcome here, you and all your hosts. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Father, we confess our sinful individualism to you. We confess that we are self-centered creatures, and so we primarily think about ourselves and we seek to serve our own needs. We are like Cain, who sinned against his brother and asked whether he was really his brother's keeper. We have done this in our families, we've done this in the church, and we've done this in our nation and with our neighbors. We confess all of our excuse-making, our blame-shifting, and our self-centered obliviousness as sinful, and we ask you to forgive us. Wash us clean and renew our right spirit within us, that gladly takes responsibility for ourselves and for those you have put into our lives. Teach us to think and live covenantally so we might teach our nation to do the same. 
Father, we know that if we in the church cover our sins in hypocrisy, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Proverbs 29 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You have confessed your sins honestly before God, and you have forsaken them. Therefore, you will have mercy. And so I declare to you, that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Psalm 99. These are the words of God. The Lord reigneth, let the people He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity, thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name, they called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God, thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy." Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the word before us this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open before you the same way your word is open before us. We commit it all to you now, in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. As we worship Jehovah for his infinite wisdom, right at the peak of our praises must be the recognition that his mercy to us is altogether holy. His mercy is holy. How he managed to do that is beyond all finite calculation. But fortunately, it's not beyond our ability to adore and praise. We can adore and praise that which is above us, that which is beyond us. But here's the question, and it's the question I hope to address. I don't hope to answer it in any kind of completeness, but I do hope to address it. How can mercy be holy? How can mercy be holy? We, could, we can think easily imagine how judgment would be holy, how execution of wrath could be holy, and we can also see how mercy would be kind. But how can mercy be holy? The answer to that question is found at the crux of all history, which would be the cross of Jesus Christ. I've titled this sermon, Between the Cherubim, because the, the psalm talks about the Lord speaking, the Lord forgiving, the Lord dealing with his people from between the cherubim. But this is all, uh, keep in the back of your mind, actually keep in the front of your mind, that the ultimate word is spoken not, between, not from between the cherubim, but from between two thieves. That is the, that's the message. The cross of Jesus Christ is the answer to the question of how mercy can be holy. Well, let's consider the psalm verse by verse first. This psalm can be divided into three sections, three 
stanzas, three strophes as well. It divided, it divides up nicely into three. Each one of those sections ends with an exaltation in the holiness of God. Holiness is therefore the threefold refrain. The Lord is holy, the Lord is holy, the Lord is holy. As the seraphim cry out before him in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. His name is holy, verse 3. His judgments are holy, verse 5. His mercy is holy, verse 9. Holiness is not so much a separate attribute of God as it is the culmination or the combination of all his attributes considered together. The seraphim don't fly in the throne room crying out kindness, 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 or justice, 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 or even love, love, love. What they cry out is holy, holy, holy. Not to the exclusion of kindness, not to the exclusion of justice. Holiness carries and embodies everything that God is. So we see in this psalm that his mercy is, his name is holy, his judgments are holy, and his mercy is holy. Because Jehovah reigns, because Jehovah reigns, his people tremble and the earth staggers. Because Jehovah reigns, his people tremble and the earth staggers. That's in the first verse. He reigns from between the cherubim, which is where the mercy seat is. In the new covenant, he reigns from between the thieves, which is where the mercy seat is. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high over all the people. Verse 2. His name is great and terrible. Verse 3. Think about this. We're talking about terrible mercy. His merciful name is terrible. Now, uh, the, the word terror here does not mean abject, craven fear, but it, it, it does mean something, and we're going to consider that as we go. His name is great and terrible and is to be honored as holy. God is the king who loves judgment, who loves the justice of judgment. Verse 4, and he establishes equity. He is the one who brings equity. He straightens things out. He rights all wrongs. Verse 4, all of it is righteous because God acts, because God reigns in righteousness. He dwells in righteousness. He rules in righteousness. Everything he does is righteous. Because he is like this, we must worship at his footstool, which is in front of the mercy seat. If he is enthroned on the mercy seat, his footstool is in front of the mercy seat, for he is holy. Verse 5, he is the God who answers prayer. He is the God who answers prayer, and as he did for his priests, Moses and Aaron, and as he also did for Samuel. Verse 6, he spoke to them from the cloudy pillar, and they kept his testimonies and ordinances. He spoke to them from the cloudy pillar. That was the, the pillar that was established for the Jews as they were going through the wilderness. It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so he spoke to them. He answered prayer from that exalted place. So when God answers prayer, he makes a distinction between the sinner and the sin because it says, he forgave them but took vengeance on their inventions. Verse 8. Notice it, so it says Moses and Aaron and Samuel. They kept his testimonies. They followed God. They were believers. They were not bad guys. They were, they were true um, citizens of his kingdom. They were true subjects. But it says he forgave them. He dealt with their transgressions. He took vengeance on their inventions. Verse 8. 
because all of this is truth itself, we are to exalt the Lord, and we are to worship at his holy hill, for he is holy. Verse 9. So I tagged this earlier. His merciful name is terrible. His merciful name is terrible. The thing that's striking about this is that this is a, a jubilant psalm. This is, not a, this is not a penitential psalm. This is a jubilant psalm. The Lord reigns, but the joy in it is not a frothy or light kind of thing. The rejoicing people here tremble. As it says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. But it says in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. So there's a kind of fear, there's a kind of uh, craven fear of punishment that is banished for every true believer, and at the same time, it brings in a true fear of God, the kind of fear that you see in the phrase God-fearing. He is a God-fearing person. He respects who God is. He stands in awe of who God is. Notice here that the rejoicing people, verse 1, the rejoicing people tremble. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. So, the name we are praising is a great and terrible name with terrible here being understood as that which means the kind of awe that causes earthquakes. It's not just, oh, I feel a little respectful. It's not saying, oh, I, oh that, isn't that admirable, or boy, that's a little bit above me, that's a little, above, a little bit above all of us. No, this is the kind of awe that brings about earthquakes. The earth staggers under the weight of his mercy. The earth staggers under the weight of his mercy. His mercy is no light thing. This is a psalm that rejoices in forgiveness, but the forgiveness that's involved is not a boys will be boys kind of forgiveness. It is no gloss over it forgiveness. This is not a forgiveness that winks at sin. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't skate by it. He deals with it, and what it takes to deal with it is the kind of thing that makes the earth quake. This is a forgiveness, this is important, this is a forgiveness that maintains the highest and holiest of standards. God's forgiveness maintains the highest and holiest of standards. The king loves just judgment, it says, verse 4, the king loves judgment and equity. After he has separated our sins from us, he takes vengeance on them, it says in verse 8. He separates us from our twisted inventions. All of us have a heart like a corkscrew. All of us have a mind like a corkscrew. And God takes that, God straightens it out. He separates that twistedness from us. And then he rains down wrath on the, those inventions. He rains down wrath on that twistedness. By, but he spares us. How is it possible for him to do that? He separates us from our inventions. And then he rains down wrath on those inventions. Before I consider, before I answer the question that I've posed, I do want to touch on one thing in passing because this psalm is all about the justice and judgment uh, of God and how he, brings, how he brings equity. A recent thing in Christian circles has been the cry for social justice. On one level, there shouldn't be any problem with it. We don't have any problem with society and we don't have any problem with justice. So social justice ought to be fine. The problem is that it's a code word 
We see in our text that the king we, the king we worship, the king we serve, loves judgment, and he establishes equity. He executes both judgment and righteousness. How could we be against any of that? How, how could we stand against any kind of uh, uh, justice or righting of wrongs? Well, biblically grounded, biblically defined, we are not against any of that. But we have to remember the warning the Lord gave us in the Gospel of John. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Don't judge on the basis of surface appearance. Judge on the basis of what actually is. Before programs or hearings or redistributions or investigations or reforms, before any of that, we must have definitions. What do we mean by justice? What do we mean by love? What do we mean by putting things right? The basic question that we always have to raise in all of these discussions is this, by what standard? When you say that's wrong, but who says? That needs to be put right. Well, who says that? What do you, what, how do you define uh, what being put right would look like? How, how do you get there and what, where are we supposed to go? What are you doing? What are the definitions? Many of the battles that we're fighting in the so-called culture wars in our generation are actually battles over the dictionary. We are battling over who will define, who will define love, who will define justice, who will define these things. And uh, we're Christians, so it ought to be here. The definitions ought to be here. So it's not biblical justice. If it is not biblical justice, biblically defined, then it's nothing more than a secular pursuit of continual, unrepented unholiness. And that is precisely what the current social justice fad is. It is a love of the unholy. It is a desire to put things right without any appeal to the God who defines everything that is right. God is the one who defines what's up and what's down. God is the one who defines black and white. It says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. Woe to those who invert everything. And so what we want to do is appeal to the God who defines perfectly. He is the infinite God. He's the God of all wisdom. So do not go along with anything simply because someone says, oh, it's for the children, or oh, it's, this, is, this is going to reestablish justice, or oh, this is going to put things right. By what standard are you? Uh, we want to be listening to the king who speaks to us from the pillar. We want to be listening to the king who reigns from between the cherubim. So, I just mentioned the, this cloudy pillar. Let's talk for a moment about that. Not, surpri not surprisingly, the merciful and holy word comes to us from the awesome cloudy tower that accompanied Israel by day. God spoke to Moses and Aaron and, uh, from the pillar. God uh, led them from the pillar. This was a tower of fire by night and it was a cloudy pillar by day. This is where the word of forgiveness comes from. The word of forgiveness comes from this cloudy pillar. In Exodus 13, we have a statement of, of, of a, de a description of this pillar. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them by the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by, by day and night. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire, fire by night from before the people. This was God's presence with them. 
God, and when the pillar moved, they followed, they followed it. So the pillar was their guidance. The pillar was their protection when Pharaoh pursued them. The pillar stood between uh, the armies of Pharaoh and the people of Israel. The pillar protected them. The pillar guided them. And in this psalm, it says the word of forgiveness came from the pillar. In the time of the new covenant, this blessing is for all the houses of Zion. This blessing of God's uh, accompanying us in the pillar, through the pillar, is for all the houses of Zion, which means you. And the Lord, it says in Isaiah 4, verse 5, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now this is, I'm, I don't want to pursue this uh, I just want to mention it. Uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the great hymn, uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, John Newton, who is the author of Amazing Grace, also wrote th- uh, this hymn, and he, and he riffs off of this statement from Isaiah, and he uses the, uh, the phrase, for a glory and a covering. For a glory and a covering, showing that the Lord is near. Well, he's, uh, I believe he's uh, onto something because he's connecting Isaiah with First uh, Corinthians when it talks about uh, uh, the woman being the glory of the man. The man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. Uh, he's not, this is not a... Um, the, the biblical approach to women, the biblical understanding of women is not a burqa-wearing, tuck-them-away sort of thing. Uh, Paul is comparing women basically to the Shekinah glory, to the glory of God. For a glory and a covering, showing the Lord is near. The woman is the glory and she wears a covering. And it's, this is glorious. It's not, uh, it's, it's not uh, anything that's, um, it's not rejected. It's not uh, go over there, leave the men alone. That's, that's not the image uh, at all. And Newton is connecting these two passages. And I encourage you to to uh, examine them closely. Paul's use of glory and covering in 1 Corinthians 11 and this passage here. The Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians that the ancient Jews had been baptized just as they, the Corinthians, had been baptized. But they were baptized, he says, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2. The so the Corinthians were starting to put on airs. The Corinthians were starting to be a little boastful, and they said, "Well, the Jews don't. The Jews don't have what we have. Right? We we have we have baptism." And Paul says, "They were baptized. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea." He said, "Well, we have the Lord's Supper. They had a rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They ate. They had manna that fell from the sky. They had spiritual food. They had spiritual drink. They had what you have." The Jews in the wilderness had what you have. And one of the things they had was baptism. And their baptism was the cloud. Right? They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud was their baptism, and God spoke to them from it. God spoke to them from that position. It marked the place where they placed the tabernacle. So when the cloud stopped, they positioned the tabernacle right beneath it, and then all the tribes of Israel camped around that, oriented to the tabernacle, which was oriented to the cloud. So it was their baptism. God spoke forgiveness to them from it. It marked the place where they placed the tabernacle, and it determined the place where they pitched all of their tents. The cloud was their protection. The cloud was their guidance. The cloud was their revelation. The word of God came to them from it. The cloud was their identity, 
Right? This cloud was not a trifle. This cloud was important. Now, I asked the question earlier, how mercy can be holy? How mercy can be holy? Now, I, I want you to, I, I want to ask, of course, I always want you to pay attention, but I want to ask you to play, pay particular attention here because this question that I'm attempting to, I'm not answering, I'm simply pointing in the direction of it. Paul says, Paul says that, uh, ask the question, who is sufficient for these things? I believe that he's talking about this, uh, this topic that I'm, I'm about to go into. This answer, the answer to this question is why the Bible describes the cross of Jesus Christ as a scandal. The, the cross of Jesus Christ trips religious men and women up. It stumbles them. They fall over it. They, there's something about this, and I, I'm telling you beforehand, there's something about what I'm going to say that is going to rough, ruffle your feathers. It's going to go the wrong, it's going to seem wrong. It upsets religious people. The cross of Jesus Christ is outrageous. What God did in the cross of Jesus Christ is outrageous, and we see it in this psalm. How is it possible for God to save us and execute vengeance on our inventions? So, right, I've got that heart like a corkscrew. I've got that twisted and dirty heart. I've got that messed up head. I've got all these problems. You all know. You, you know the gunk in your life. You know what comes up. You know, you know, right? How can God fellowship with that? How can God have anything to do with any of us? How, how is that possible? So, how can God deal with us? How can he show mercy to us? He sees... He sees that we keep his testimonies and ordinances as we stagger along, trying to keep his testimonies and ordinances. And he also sees with absolute perfection the ways in which we fail to do so. He sees that we're not, we're not trying to be utter and complete and total heathen. We are trying to, uh, I do want to be a Christian, and yeah, I do want to follow Christ, and yeah, I do want to read my Bible, and I do want to follow it. Yes, I, all of that, but... When we confess our sins every week, when we get on our knees and confess our sins, do you ever get down on your knees and say, nope, nothing this week either? <laughs> do you ever come up short? Right? No, we, we all know what we're, what we're like. We all know what we're like. So God sees all of that, and he sees way more than that, incidentally. If we see how much gunk we have, how much gunk do you think God sees that we have? He sees us following, following him, and he sees us when we stumble. How is this to be dealt with? How is our grime to be dealt with? The answer to this question, and when it comes to man's salvation, it is the question. The answer to this question is double imputation. God imputes the sin and wickedness of our guilt to Christ on the cross, and he imputes the absolute purity of Christ to us. Double imputation. Impute, imputation simply means reckon. So God reckons our sin to Jesus, and he reckons the righteousness of Jesus to us. God reckons, and, and he does this because there's an identity between Christ and his people. There's a union with Christ and his people. Christ is the head of his people. And so God takes everything that we've done wrong and he imputes it to Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God made him, 
As it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God comes to us and says, I have a transaction. I, I'm proposing a transaction for you. You grimy, filthy little sinner, you. I've got a proposal. I'm going to take all of your sin, all of it, everything you ever have done wrong, everything you're doing wrong right this minute, and everything you're ever going to do wrong. I'm going to take all of that, and I'm going to credit it to Jesus. I'm going to reckon it to Jesus. I'm going to impute it to Jesus. I'm going to place your sin on him. And, moving on to the next Christian, and your sin on him. And then moving on to the next Christian, and your sin on him. And down through the millions, and your sin on him. I'm going to take all of it, and I'm going to impute it to Jesus Christ. Moreover, he was the perfect sinless one. And God says, and here's the second part of my proposal. I'm going to take his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, and I'm going to credit that to you. I'm going to, when you pray to me, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to hear Jesus. When you ask me for something, I'm going to listen to it as though Jesus were praying it. That's the meaning, incidentally, of in Jesus' name, amen. That's, we're, we're not saying in Jesus' name, amen is not our code word for open your eyes now. In Jesus' name, amen means I have no right to come before you except clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why, that's why I have dared to attempt this. I've asked you to bless the food because Jesus was perfect. I've asked you to help me, give me love for my next door neighbor that I'm struggling to love because Jesus was perfect. I'm asking for this promotion at work so that I can better, be better equipped to feed my family. And I'm asking you for this because Jesus was perfect. I don't deserve to ask for this, but Jesus does deserve to ask for it. And so I'm asking you because he is worthy. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. For he hath made, God has made, Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Then Romans 3.26 brings it down to a uh, more of a focused point. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Do you see the problem? I said earlier, how can mercy be holy? That's, this is the same question in a different guise. This is the same question stated differently. God, could want, God wants to be just in dealing with you, and God wants to justify you. The problem is, if he's just, if, he's, if God is just with us, we're all going to hell. If God justifies us, we all go to heaven. If God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to let it go, I'm going to let it slide, your sins are all forgiven, but he just does that, we're all going to heaven, but now God is unjust. The, the real problem is that many times non-believers say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? That's not the problem. That is no problem at all. The problem is how can a just and holy God let anybody into heaven? That's the problem. God didn't need to send his son in order to condemn anybody. God had to send his son in order that we not be condemned. The problem that had to be solved was how could God be the one who justifies? We are in our own right, standing there in our own sin, knee-deep in our own sin, we are unjustifiable. There is no excuse. We have no excuses. We have no justification. We do have forgiveness. All right? Our sins are inexcusable. 
Our sins are not, um, thank, thanks to God, they're not unforgivable. Our sins are not unforgivable, but pro- provided Christ died. So, God is accomplishing two things. He's accomplishing a holy mercy. He's accomplishing a merciful holiness. He's accomplishing just and justifier together. That's what he's doing, and he does it in the cross. He does it from the pillar of cloud and fire. He does it from the pillar of, cl- uh, the pillar of cloud and fire with the tabernacle right beneath. He does it from between the cherubim. He does it from the mercy seat. The word that's rendered mercy seat is literally propitiatory. So propitiation is the averting of wrath. It's the satisfying of wrath. The mercy seat is where wrath is dealt with. The mercy seat is where the wrath happens. Do you see that? The mercy seat is where the wrath is focused. The mercy seat is where the wrath is aimed. Propitiation means the averting, the, satis- the, the averting of wrath, the absorption of wrath, the dealing with wrath. The mercy seat is where wrath is dealt with. Think of it this way, and this is the part that I wish I, wish I could, um, I wish I were adequate for this. Think of it this way. In unholy world, the nation of Israel, unholy world, the nation of Israel is set apart as a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. Israel is a holy nation, unholy world, holy nation. Within that nation, the Levites and the sons of Aaron were set apart as holy, 2 Chronicles 23.6. So unholy world, holy nation, holy Levites, holy priests, 2 Chronicles 23.6. The tabernacle was the holiest place in Israel. The tabernacle is the holiest place in Israel. And later, when they invaded the land of Canaan and God settled his name on a particular place, the temple served that purpose. The temple later was the holiest place in Israel. The tabernacle in the wilderness was the holiest place in Israel. The entire tabernacle was holy. Within the tabernacle was the holy place. So there there are three sections of the tabernacle. There's the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Within the tabernacle was the holy place, Hebrews 9.2. Inside that was the holy of holies. Inside that was the holy of holies, the most holy place, and that is where the mercy seat was, Exodus 26.34, Hebrews 9.3. So inside the holy of holies, the holiest place there was the mercy seat. The holiest place inside the holy of holies was not the tip's of the wings of the cherubim. The holiest place inside the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat. The holiest place, therefore, in all of Israel, in all of Israel, holy nation, holy tabernacle, holy place within the tabernacle, the holiest place within the tabernacle, and then the holiest place of all is the mercy seat. Why is that the holiest place? Because that is where all the sin was. How, how, how is this possible? This is the place where the priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the priest would come in and apply the blood to the mercy seat. That's where all the sin was. All the sin of all of Israel was placed where? On the mercy seat, where the blood was placed. How can the holiest place be the dirtiest place? Do you see that? 
how, how can this awful uh, place, how can this dump, all right, this place where all the sin is brought, be the holiest place in the holiest place in the holiest place in the holiest nation? This is the place where all the sin was brought. All the sin of Israel and all the wrath of God and all the forgiveness of God occupy the same spot. All of it, they occupy the same spot. We will know that we've meditated on this in a fitting way when there's a great earthquake and the Spirit falls in Pentecostal power. Why is the tablecloth here white? Why is the tablecloth here so white? Because that's where all the sin is. That's why it's white. But that's also where the blood is. All right, do you see that? If we just gather all our sin together, all we have is a judgment fest. All we have is everything. All we're going to do is all go to hell together. All we, when we rake all our sins together, it's just nothing but a big mess. And if we, all we have is the justice of God, we have an empty heaven. How can you have a white tablecloth on a communion table? How can you have a white tablecloth on a communion table? Because there's a glass of red wine also on the communion table. So in that tabernacle, there in that Holy of Holies, containing the Ark of the Covenant, on top of that Ark are the two cherubim facing each other, and between them is the mercy seat. And God dispenses his judgments from that place, the place where the blood was put, which is the holiest place within the holiest place in all of Israel. God's mercy is holy. God's mercy is holy. But the only reason his mercy is holy is because there's blood. That's why his mercy can be holy. His mercy is holy because Jesus died. And so that means your forgiveness, that means our forgiveness is not a matter of divine indulgence. Our forgiveness, our new life, our cleansing is everlastingly holy. And all of it is the revealed mystery of divine substitution. Our life is based on vicarious justice. Christ for you. And you in Christ. If there is not that transaction, you're on your own. And if you're on your own and you have to scramble to save yourself in your own name, what's going to happen is you're not going to be saved. We can only be saved in the name of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come to just uh, tell us, give us a few suggestions to show us a better, uh, a, a better way by saying, you know, some pro tips for life. What he does is he comes to die. And the, the teaching that he gives us is teaching that we can follow after we've received the benefit of that death, after we've been cleansed, after we've been put right, after everything's been straightened out, then we, can then we can pay attention to what the parables mean. We can pay attention to what the Lord's ethic means, what, he's, what the Lord is explaining to us in the Sermon on the Mount. But we've got to do the mercy seat business first. The mercy seat has to be the basis of everything. And this is how God can separate sin from sinner. This is how God can look down on you and see that you've kept his testimonies and ordinances, and you've also not kept his testimonies and ordinances, and God has dealt with that in the death of Jesus. And that is the only way that any of us are put right. That's the only way any of us are saved. That's the only way that any of us can be born again is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is kind to you from between the cherubim. Jesus Christ is kind to you from between the thieves. 
Jesus Christ is kind to you, but he's kind to you on his terms, not on ours. We don't come with anything in our hand. We don't, we don't come to him to negotiate. We come to him to repent. We come to him to believe, to just receive what he has offered. And what he has offered us is everlasting mercy, and that mercy is everlastingly and eternally holy. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for how merciful it is, and we thank you for how holy it is. Father, we know that we could never have come up with anything like this, and we adore your everlasting wisdom, the kindness of your wisdom, and the justice of your wisdom. Amen. This coming week, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving in our land, and this really is one of the great vestiges of a once a vibrant Christian faith. Our nation has turned away from God in so many ways, and so giving thanks in the midst of this can seem difficult or odd when so much has gone wrong. But we need to remember that giving thanks is not merely what we do when God has given us victory and success. It's not merely what we do when we have fought and won. Giving thanks is what we do in order to fight, in order to win. We fight with thanksgiving. And that is what we do here at this Thanksgiving meal week after week. We celebrate the salvation of the world in the death and resurrection of our king every week. We celebrate this. We give thanks for his certain victory that we do not yet see fully accomplished in order that it might be accomplished in us and our children and in every nation of men. That is what we're doing here, and we want to ask God to make our thanksgiving everywhere else to have the same potency. Remember, when Jesus first instituted this thanksgiving meal, it was before he was betrayed and crucified. And then, when he had risen from the dead, the gospel was preached and a few thousand were baptized in Jerusalem. And then they were sharing this meal from house to house, believing what it proclaimed before it had barely even begun to happen. And ever since, Christians have shared this Thanksgiving meal all over the world, announcing what will surely be before they have actually seen it. Even the very first Christian American pilgrims were giving thanks in faith, not only truly thankful for what God had given, but believing him for what he would give. Thanksgiving is not merely what we do as a result of the blessings of God that he has already given. Thanksgiving is also what we do in faith in the sure and certain hope of the blessings that God will give. So give thanks for the end of abortion in our land. Give thanks for the end of sexual perversion and exploitation. Give thanks for the reformation and revival that God will surely send on this land. Give thanks for the salvation of your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Give thanks by faith in Jesus alone. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let us give thanks. Our God and Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, not to condemn the world, but that through your Son, the world might be saved. And so we give you thanks for the salvation of this world and all that it entails now, by faith in Jesus and in his name. Amen. So remember, wherever you go you're, this week, you're going to be with family, friends. Uh, there's going to be plenty of sin all around you, right? <laughs> Welcome to this world, 
right? We're taking sin with us. You're going to run into people with sin, and there's going to be sin everywhere. The, the only possibility for us to really give thanks and to actually have fellowship with one another, the only way of doing that in God's name and doing it and lifting up and for God to be pleased with us is if we are in Christ. If our sins have been laid on him and his righteousness has been laid on us, that's, only, that's the heart and soul of true Christian thanksgiving. And that's the only way you can go into this week with joy, with confidence, knowing whatever there is there, whatever family, friends, bumps, bruises, whatever is there, you can go into it with confidence saying, but all of my sin has been laid on Jesus and all of his perfection has been laid on me. And so I can give thanks with a glad heart and trust God with it all. So go with God's blessing now as you go to give thanks. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit descend upon you and remain in your hearts always. And amen.